here we are again, making me uh, stand there and like, okay, what's this all about? It's about us meeting with God. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I, mean, I was raised in Pentecost, so it's, it's like I haven't known any other thing but being in wild Pentecostal churches. And we're not a wild church. We're pretty calm. I have been in places that scared me. So I, I, said, I need to get out of here. Um, but I just felt there was a moment when the Holy Spirit wanted to just worship through us. And there is a difference with us worshiping the Lord in and through the Holy Spirit, but there is a difference in the Holy Spirit worshiping through us. And I want to encourage you, if you haven't come to that place in the immersion of the Spirit in your prayer time or morning times or whatever times that you can kind of clear your head and just set, just close out all the distractions and just let Him have His way in your life, You'll sing songs that you have no idea the magnitude of what you're saying. Amen. And it's just like praying in the Spirit and singing in the Spirit. And it did make me think, okay, do I have the right thing here? This long worship time that was so rich and powerful in the Spirit, I could have just kept on going. In fact, I thought, well, what's going to happen here? Something's going to happen here. I'm, I'm waiting for something to happen here. Do you see little Graceland up here? And an innocent youth just worshiping God. I was like, now we know what Jesus meant. You got to come as children. You got to not worry about how your image looks, which you have to learn that, right? We almost have to teach children to be self-conscious. Otherwise, they'll say anything in front of adults. And they'll tell people what the parents have been discussing. So, you know, they, they repeat. There's no filter with them. They're like, you know, whatever they hear, they repeat. And whatever they see, they talk about it. But that's the innocence that they have. We really need to have that kind of a spiritual innocence so I, I might pare this down just a little bit I'm not really sure you know it's made me wonder like am I on the right thing but I, I wanted to share some thoughts with you from 1 Corinthians 15 on what if and I just I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like a practical person when someone asks me says what, what would it be like if Adam and Eve had not sinned I don't care they sinned. So why are you going to spend a lot of brain time trying to figure out, hey, what it didn't happen. <laughs> they sinned. So the what ifs is not something I really embrace, but it's not the what ifs that I'm going to give to you today. It's the what ifs that Paul, and you hardly ever see this in his writing. When I gave the text to Shane, I said, this is the text, and you'll see that if is dominant in these verses. You hardly ever see that. And to be honest with you, it's no telling how many times I read this chapter, and I, and I, I love 
this, this section, you know, 12, 13, 14, you know, the chapter on love, and then you get to 15, and it's all about the resurrection, and he starts talking about these what-ifs. So I want to just try to pare some of this down. But this is 1 Corinthians 14, verse 12. If you have a, um, a phone, you can go to the New American Standard. I just like switching stuff up sometimes, so, you know, you can go to something else. But this is really so fascinating that Paul is talking to the Corinthian church. Think about this. He's not talking to, this is not a message to sinners. This is not written to sinners. This is not written to unbelievers. This is written to people who had come to faith in Christ in this, it's just hard to describe Corinth. 400,000 people in this city when he went in and preached and there was a congregation birthed out of absolute decadence. When people got saved there, they were, and some of first, his first letter to the church there, he's correcting. He's got, they're doing so many things wrong, but he never talks to them as though they're not believers. He talks to them as people of God. And he gets to a subject that he's heard that some of them have made a decision in themselves to come to a certain conclusion. And you're going to see this as we start with verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached, and he has been preached to you, this is what he's saying, that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? I'm going to try to be really disciplined here instead of preach through it. I'm going to read it, and then we'll go back through. But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses to God or of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if indeed the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hope in Christ only in this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. Verse 12 is an interesting question. It's the only question out of all the verses I just read. It's the only question. Everything else after that is declarations of, of statements. This is the question. Now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you who are believers say there's no resurrection of the dead? They didn't say there's no resurrection of Jesus. They said there's no resurrection for some people. Why would they come to that conclusion? Well, these were pagan people. They had no, most of these people were not Jewish. There was some, there was some Jewish there, but these were mostly Roman raised pagans and how they could come to some conclusion that, well, you know, we believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, but we're just not sure that everybody else that dies are going to be raised from the dead. And he said, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. He's saying to them, you can't have it both ways. You can't believe 
in the resurrection of Jesus and not believe that there's resurrection for the dead. They are inseparable. You can't have it both ways. This is what he's saying to them. And the magnitude of that statement, Christ's resurrection solidifies the resurrection of people. They're joined together. And this is a teaching moment that he's, got, he's having with them. And we, we shouldn't be surprised because that first generation of faith is everything new. I mean, he's telling them that there's open sin, adultery, and, and really incest going on in the church, and he's, and he's calling that out, and he's just, he's just dealing with things that are out of control. You see, there's, there's kind of churches like that that's always been. <laughs> just people out of control. But this is the first what if. In verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is empty, in vain. And your faith is also, uh, another word be just useless. What, what have you put faith in? If none of this is real, our preaching is empty, empty of any reality. We're not, we're not getting anywhere close to something happening beyond this life if this is the conclusion we've come to. In fact, he's saying it's all a scam. It's all a charade. None of this is true. And we've been found to be false witnesses. This is in verse 15. He says, no, not only is it this, but it's also that we are found to be false witnesses of God. We are just a bunch of liars if none of this is true. You know, um, Joe Rogan, some of you knew I'm talking about I had one of the largest podcasts and he's he's really like he is an atheist but now he's interviewed enough Christians isn't it interesting that you can rail against well I don't believe that I don't believe that and then somebody comes in and starts talking about Jesus to him and then he's kind of like starting to like okay well you know and I don't know where he is on the scale but he really has blatantly said I don't believe in any of that it's all made up and now these people he's interviewed is starting to, to kind of whittle away some of that arrogance. And, you know, Morgan Freeman's probably one of the great actors of this, the, my time of watching films. He was interviewed after having a part in Ben-Hur. I don't know if you've ever seen this interview. It's a, it's a lady, I think she's, she must be from Europe, she has a heavy accent, but she was just asking about how Ben Hur affected him, and, and he was just kind of downplaying the whole thing that he was, it's just a movie. It's just a movie. And she said, Are you religious? And he kind of brushed it off, and she said, Well, do you believe in God? And this is exactly verbatim what he said. So listen, he said, I believe in God, and I believe also in me, same person. Think about that. He said, I believe in God, and I believe in me, same person. You know, it's kind of like, well, the ground hasn't opened up. But it shows where he's at, that God still loves him, is merciful. It's like, well, that's, that's kind of like scary stuff. This is where some people come to the conclusion when they get to the point to where this is all there is and there's nothing. When I take my last breath, there's nothing out there. It's interesting how some of those who believe that get a little nervous when they start winding down the end of their life. I hope that he, he has a revelation of Jesus before he draws his last breath. 
But what Paul is saying is that those who drew their last breath, you're really saying when you say they're not raised from the dead, you are also saying that Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead. Found to be false witnesses because we testified against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise. In fact, the dead are not raised. And he goes on and and he continues to deal with this in verse 16. And, and it's whatever you think of this, however you think of what he's saying, and, and he's using this what if all through these verses. He's done with it after verse 19. He doesn't go to the ifs anymore. He's just dealing with this group of people in the church that he's concerned about. And in verse 16, he says, For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. He repeats that. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless you are still in your sins. This is a major statement here. You know what? Some of us, it's just too late for somebody to tell us otherwise, right? We know where we're heading. We know when we draw our last breath where we're going. And nobody can damper that. And we realize that this is a vapor of life. We have only a set amount of time. All of us in this room have a set amount of time. However we get in life, we're all going to come to that point where we draw our last breath. And this is where our faith has to be. That he's going to raise us up at the end. Just as Christ was raised. He, He joins the two. You know, in a way, we long for completion. We long for that day. We long for heaven. We want to see God face to face. Nobody can take that assurance away from us. And it's just odd that in the church, in the church, and I I can understand that these people did not come from any background of faith, so this this is, it's hard for us to put ourselves in their place, right? You know, they, they didn't have any, other influence in their lives other than paganism and then they're coming to conclusions about well what, when you die are you dead you just hit but we believe jesus was raised from the dead and he said no you can't have that if you believe he was raised from the dead then there's going to be a resurrection of all the dead not just the righteous dead but there's going to be in revelation the wicked dead are going to be raised and i think that's why there's a lot of atheists that said this is all it there's not going to be anything beyond this because we don't want to be accountable for anything. Ray Comfort does a, a good job of talking to people that claim to be atheists. And then he talks to them and takes them in. Uh, do you think this is wrong? And if somebody did this to you, would that be wrong? And so why is that wrong? Why is that law there? That's kind of like an law understood that you're not supposed to take what belongs to someone else, right? Is stealing wrong? Do you know thieves even believe stealing is wrong? Because they get really upset when somebody steals their stuff that they have stolen from someone else. It's, I mean, they are the most dangerous people to have for somebody to steal stuff from because they have this high bar that only we are supposed to steal stuff. You're not supposed to steal from us. And you see the reaction that they know it's wrong. It's like the 20s and 30s in Chicago. They knew it was wrong, but power rules when there's not enough law to suppress it. We don't see that today, do we? And yet here he is in verse 18. He says, also, if if all of that that you just said is true, 
Then also those who have fallen asleep, think about this, all of those who have already fallen asleep are gone. They're perished. They're no more. If we have hope in Christ only in this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. If there's no resurrection, then all of those who have taken their last breath in faith, and that includes Abraham, David, Daniel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, all the way through all the Old Testament, all of those people, do you realize that the resurrection of Christ depended on them being raised? They were, their eternity was all at stake about being raised up and it was going to be sealed when Jesus was raised. And he's saying that if all those who've already perished, who have already fallen asleep, they're perished if there's no resurrection from the dead. And he said, if we have hope in this, in Christ, in this life, only we are. You know, you probably remember Carl Strader saying, some people say, well, you know, the Christian life is such a great life. It's a good life. It's a moral life. It's a healthy life. And, and if there's no heaven at the end, it's still worth living. And he says, no, it isn't. No, it isn't. There's enough things that's going to happen in your lifetime that the only thing that makes you think about hope is that there's heaven waiting for you. In that, well, most of my life, <clears throat> most of my life has been really good, but if it's not there, no, if it's not there, nothing matters, right? This, if in this life only we have hope. King James says we are of all people most miserable anybody here been miserable before miserable you know there's degrees of miserable because you have one miserable experience and then you say well that's not as bad as the previous miserable <laughs> and then you might have an experience that says you know what I think this is the crown jewel of misery in November of 2020 Brenda exposed me to COVID and I got sick. <laughs> I know she exposed me because she got COVID and, and then it took two or three days for me to show symptoms. So I know that it started with her. <laughs> so we went on a war path. Jason sent us that oximeter and I was checking her blood, blood oxygen about three times a day and and I'd walk around there and I'd curse this virus, not, not saying any bad words. I was just, I was cursing this virus and I was yelling in the living room, you get out of my house, you stinking virus. And, and I'd lay hands on her and I know she probably said, he's probably running the fever and he's not doing really well. And I was like, whoa. And I'd cast that virus out of her and I'd say, this is the virus from hell. It didn't come from China. It came from a darker place than that. Because of the misery. It was just miserable. Now, I've been probably more miserable than that, you know. Appendectomy, that was not fun. And a couple of surgeries, that was, getting over that was, it was miserable. But he says, there's no misery that ranks. If none of this is true, we are of all people the most miserable bunch of people. Because we're hanging on to something that the outside world says is not true. But he's not finished. 
There's only two other, there's only one other place where the word miserable, this word is translated pitiful and miserable. But it's Laodicea in, in Revelation 3. He says, you, you say you're wealthy, you have need of nothing. He said, but you don't even know that you're wretched, miserable, there it is, poor, blind, and naked. And he calls them to what? Repent. This is a church. This is just like he was writing to, to the church at Corinth. This is the church. The church can be wrong. And aren't you glad that these people wrote to correct things that were wrong in churches so that we know if they show up here that that's error? And Laodicea was that church that was like way off from God. But did God say, I don't want anything to do? No, he says, you repent and you come. You repent, you surrender yourself. We have a confidence that when we take our last breath, we know where we're going, right? I want to live long enough to see a great-grandchild. Amen. And we're putting everything on Micah. He's in, in our, our granddaughters are the youngest out of, well, not Joshua's younger, but, you know, if we're waiting on Selah and Abigail, man, hang on, Brenda. We need to eat healthy. <laughs> but I like to see a grandchild. And why our children got married so late, I don't know. We, we, we prayed for them. I guess we prayed too much for them to meet the right person. It just took a while. But we, we want to see. I, I don't want to die. I want to keep being what God's called me to be and do and, and uh, love my wife, love my family, and love this church, love people, help people. There's still a desire in me, but I'm telling you, if, if this is the last day I live, I am not afraid of what's on the other side. I know without a doubt what's waiting on me, and I don't want to leave. Uh, you know, I told, I told Brenda, you cannot die before me because God won't do that to me. <laughs> so, but, but we just believe for God to keep us, and we want to continue to be an influence for his kingdom and our family and people around us. But the hope that we have is that if this is all there is that we have today, then so be it. Jesus could come back and none of us would have to deal with that, right? Not, unless you're left here and then you'd have to deal with it. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul writes, I am already being poured out like a drink offering in the time of my departure. And I fought the good fight. This is the man who wrote this earlier in his ministry to the church at Corinth, and now he knows for certain he's about to be executed, and I want you to see how he approaches. He said, I have fought a good fight. I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day and not to me only, hold on, but also to all who love his appearing. I hope you have the assurance 
that if this is your last day, you know exactly where you're going. But if not, you need to place your trust in him. You need to surrender your doubts. It might be that everything is well, but you're tormented. You're bombarded with these ideas. You know, am I really in? Am I going to make it? If I took my last breath today, I want our praise team to come back up. I guess we condensed it down enough. Yeah, we're, we're okay. But there was, there was just, Jara is enough. It just kept coming to me is that, do we really believe that? Do we believe that he is enough for what troubles you? In your family or in your health or just you, you and you're alone and you're thinking and you lay down at night and you wonder about things that trouble you. Would you stand with me this morning? Because I, I just believe during our worship time, God was making himself so real that if you're carrying brokenness in your life, you don't have to carry that. If you're carrying doubts, you don't have to carry that. This is why he went through this litany of what ifs. He didn't want them to continue to carry what if. What if? What if this happened? What if that doesn't happen? He came to a place where he says, let's let all of the what ifs go in preference for what we know is true. Lord, I pray this morning for those who need healing in their lives, maybe physical, a physical healing that they have been in pain today. But you're the answer to that. It's by your stripes we're healed. But also those who are carrying failure and brokenness and regret in some measure, some form, that they wish they could have undo something that's happened. Maybe not even recently, but at some point in their life, they carry a weight. You don't want them to carry that weight. Lord, I ask that they would just make a move towards you and say, Jesus, help me, help me, free me. And if that's you, would you just come Let's not take a lot of time. Just come and stand here and say, Lord, help me, heal me, touch me, renew me. If that's you, I want you to just come right now. We're going to believe God to heal you, to restore you. In Jesus' name, because Jireh is enough. If that's you, he wants to feel you, he wants to heal you.